0: Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines
1: us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hi, Kim. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Spring is springing, and I'm excited for all the new green shoots and fresh vegetables and fresh herbs that are going to be coming through my world pretty soon.
0: I hear you. We're actually getting some spring weather here as well. We have some buds on some of the trees, and the snow's mostly melted, which kind of makes a mess, but but it's starting to feel a little bit warmer and springier. Yay. Yeah. And, you know, we have this celestial event that's coming up in about four days that marks the end of winter and the beginning of spring. And along with that, we have this host of spring celebrations. Many of them are religious Passover, Easter, Ostara. But today we're going to be talking about a holiday that has both religious and secular strands. We're going to be talking about Noruz, which means new day. This is a Persian holiday celebrating the coming of spring. It lasts for 13 days. It is the Persian New Year, and many of the centerpieces of this holiday are foods with rich symbolism. To kind of understand this holiday, we have to go way back to ancient Persia and a religious sect called the Zoroastrians. This religion is the oldest continuously practiced religion in the world. Most of the followers were animists, which means that they essentially believed that there was a spirit in all things, whether it was tangible or intangible, animate or inanimate. And the main purpose of this religion was to overcome the struggle between good and evil, light and dark. And most of the followers were really pretty pastoral people. They weren't very literate. And initially, they didn't have any images or icons that could sustain a belief system. So Zoroaster, who was the leader of this religion, infused the divine in things that were familiar to these people and things that they saw every day, which were things in nature. You get this mythology around, much like the Greek mythology with Persephone and Demeter, with spring being this conqueror of winter. So you've got the sprouts fighting against the winter. You've got the increased light fighting against the dark. So Noruz has a lot of its basis in this Zoroastrian religion.
1: The thing that really struck me when we first talked about approaching this topic and then getting into the research of it was that Noruz is practiced by over 300 million people around the world in Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and so much more, and yet I had never heard about it before. Of course, it's a holy day for those of the Zoroastrian faith, but it is also commonly a secular holiday, reflecting a more cultural tradition than a holy one. As you say, it quite literally means new day, and directly correlates to the vernal equinox, where sunlight is evenly divided between the north and the south hemispheres. It marks the first day of the first month on the Iranian calendar. In 2009, Canada made it a national holiday. And in 2010, the UN General Assembly adopted March 21st officially as the International Day of Neruz. This year, Neruz actually begins at 2.37 a.m. on Saturday, March 20th. That's Pacific time, so adjust accordingly. There's a secular version of the origins of Neruz found in the Shamane, an epic book of poetry dating to 977 to 1010 CE that roots Neruz in the story of Jamchid. And Jamchid is a mythological king who vanquished demons intent on manifesting a cruel long winter that would kill every single living creature. Master of everything but the heavens themselves... Jamchid built a jeweled throne and tricked the demons into raising him up to the heavens, where he shone like the sun and defeated the darkness. And his triumph saved humanity and really life in general. So again, it's that same thing that you're talking about with bringing light into darkness, evoking an end, evoking a beginning of things. It's still very much in that same vein. To illustrate how old the story of Neruz is, in Iran's Achaemenid period of 550 to 330 BC, there's a detailed account of a Nauru celebration, although it was not called that at the time, taking place at the Persepolis complex, where perhaps the Palace of Apadana and the Hundred Columns Hall were constructed specifically to catch the light of the vernal equinox. The idea is that this was specifically built for Nauru's celebrations. In the version of the tradition, kings from different Achaemenid nations would bring tribute to the, quote, king of kings. And this traditional act of tribute was just so critical to the culture that King Cambyses II's appointment as the king of Babylon was actually only considered legitimate after his participation in the festival. So I'm saying this to really illustrate how important this celebration is to Persian culture. And as you point out, like, the particular celebration has two main symbolic constructs, right? It's the end of strife and the rebirth of life, as well as the triumph of good over evil. And these are really potent stories that we tell ourselves about how and why the world works as it does. So I'm thinking about Jamchid defeating demons And his light brings prosperity to the land and things start to grow where it was winter before. And I'm thinking now of Demeter, who is celebrating the return of her daughter, Persephone, from Hades. I have a tendency to mix up my Greek and Roman mythology name, so bear with me. But she's so happy and joyful at at their reunion that she shines out, becomes like the sun, and that's when we have spring and summer I really feel what you're talking about with the the pastoral animist nature of the story. It's something that's really fundamentally true to us, that there comes a period in every year, in every life, where you have a heavy darkness and you emerge into light. What I loved about learning about Nauru's was that it's truly a celebration of the light in the world. And I think the stories that we
0: tell ourselves to get through these times, to make sense of our world across so many cultures, right? Mm-hmm. We have very similar stories across cultures, which I think really speaks to how close we really are and mm-hmm. how much we are alike and how much we need to have those stories to get through those times.
1: I completely agree. And I also would add how much we need to connect to each other through storytelling. The fact that we do have oral traditions that truly have been passed down centuries speak to how important it is for us to tell the stories, share the stories as a way of keeping them and then passing them down the line. And right.
0: And the fact that this celebration has gone on for so long, even in the face of being illegal at some points, mm-hmm. how much it is ingrained into the Persian culture, that it continues to move forward. And one of the things that I learned is in 2016, Michelle Obama had a Nauru's celebration at the White House.
1: Well, I saw a photo of a very particular element of it, it, and that is the Hafsien table. Would you tell us a little bit more about how one would celebrate Nauru's?
0: Yeah. As you mentioned, there is a half-scene table, which is very central to this celebration. They'll set up the half-scene table, which has some very symbolic components to it. And this kind of goes back to that Zoroastrian system of belief where... Each of these things is symbolic, but I would have to say it it has a spirit to it more than Mm. just symbolism. Yes. Half means seven and seen is the letter S. So there are seven items that begin with the letter S that are always on the table. There is sieb, which is an apple, and it represents beauty. Sear, which is garlic, and it represents good health. Circa, which is vinegar, and it represents patience. And I love that rather than it being this acrid, acidic thing, it represents patience because you have to be patient for this right. product to come to be.
1: I felt the exact same way when I read about that. I was yeah. like, oh, oh, patience, of course. Yeah. Sanbol,
0: which is a hyacinth, and it represents spring. Samanu, which is a sweet pudding, typically a wheat pudding. It represents fertility. Sabza, which are sprouts, and they represent rebirth. And sika, which are coins, which represent prosperity. Another list also listed sumac, which are crushed berries, and they represent the sunrise and the spice of life. I love that. Yeah, people will also put some other items on that half seen table. Sometimes mirrors to reflect the past, but also to look into the future. Uh, goldfish, which represent life. The half scene table is up throughout the celebration, so it's up for the thirteen days.
1: One of the things that I read is also kind of common on the table are painted eggs, symbolizing fertility, and and this is where you start to get at that sense as well about traditions starting to blend together. When I read about the the table, my first thought was the Seder table with Passover and the different things that you would include on that, bone and bitter herbs. Everything that's part of the Seder plate has a meaning as well, but in a very different way from what is found on the half scene table.
0: Mm-hmm. When I was doing some research, um, I came across an article on NPR that describes the half table as... Think colorful, elaborate Day of the Dead type altars meets a mashup of Easter (laughs) and Passover traditions. Part of the half scene table is that the whole family gets involved, the whole family puts it together. The traditional belief is that whatever you're doing at the precise moment that the equinox hits is what will happen for that upcoming year. So being together with loved ones in health and happiness is very important. Mm, And they will spend time around the table until it's time for them to celebrate. As you mentioned, this year, it's at 230 in the morning. So there probably will be a lot of games and things that happen up until that point.
1: One of the things I I loved reading about with the half scene table and the family gathering as well is that you wear your new clothes, that you have an outfit that you're bringing in this new year with newness and beauty and companionship and being with your family and your friends. And that once you have your kind of time with your family, that you can go out and actually go start to pay visits with other family and friends that may not be living with you. And that reminded me so much of the collations of New Year's Day. I was really struck by the similarity in that, the idea that this was your time to go pay calls on people, to wish them well, to wish them a happy New Year. That these are traditions that are miles apart, (laughs) lots of kilometers apart, and yet there's still that sense of hospitality and friendship.
0: As we mentioned, this is also a holiday that is really focused on food, and there are some really traditional dishes that are served during the celebration
1: of Naruz. Which ones did you find particularly interesting? One of the food traditions that I encountered in my research comes from a 2017 Los Angeles Times article about cooking for Naruz, where two dishes are described being made with herbs typically found in the spring, dill cilantro, parsley, fenugreek, green onion, and romaine lettuce. My senses were immediately flooded with memory tastes of greenness and spring, and I started craving green apples, tender asparagus, new mint, new potatoes, spring lamb, all the hallmarks of my family's Easter table. And in the article, Yasmin Sarmadi, who is a Los Angeles restaurateur, explains that the specific dishes described in the article are very common, very popular. Sabzi palau ba mahi, which is rice tinted vivid green with herbs and served with fried fish, as well as kuku yi sabzi, or an herbed omelet. And for her, not only Do these dishes have a symbolic relationship to spring through their ingredients? But they are traditional simply because that is what her mother, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother have been making in the family for years. So Sarmadi said in the article, quote, My mom has always been very good at preserving tradition, so regardless of where we were, any time of day or night, we would wake up for the new year. She's very precise about when and how everything is done and presented. And her mother... Samsi Katabi, who was 75 years old, described learning how to cook these family wheels in a way that felt really familiar. Katabi told the LA Times quote, At the beginning, I was measuring everything, asking my mother, looking at her recipes. But after 50 years of cooking, I don't need to measure. I do everything with my eyes. This reminded me so much of our conversation with Samantha Ferraro, author of The Weeknight Mediterranean Kitchen. She was the focus of our In the Kitchen With episode where we made dolmates or stuffed grape leaves. Samantha had said something really similar about developing an instinct for creating heirloom recipes. That over time, she developed a sense for the shape and the size of the dolmates just by how the grape leaves felt in her hands. But I digress, per usual. Other popular dishes served on Nuru's include reste olo, which is chunks of lamb with rice and noodles, dolmé bark, grape leaves stuffed with a mixture of rice and ground lamb, and shirin or sikar polo, which is a sweet rice pilaf, I'd be super happy to eat any of those dishes.
0: Me too. There was another one I don't know if you mentioned it, ash reshta, which reminded me a lot of our conversations about eating your luck. And, you know, we talked about that in the curry episode. We talked about it in the New Year's Day episode. We talked about it in the Mardi Gras episode. Ash Reshta is a thick soup of noodles. The noodles are actually symbolic of the possibilities in one's life. And it's thought that untangling the noodles as you eat them will bring you good fortune.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, man, I think of all the ramen I've eaten over the years. And like, I I should be in for life. I would really want to try the Ashresh tab. yeah, I'm, I'm all I'm pro noodle. Yeah, I'm a big fan of noodles as well.
0: So as we mentioned, Noruz is a 13 day celebration. The 13th day is called Sizda Badar. And it is the day when everybody goes outside. They take a picnic outside and celebrate the end of Noruz by being together in
1: nature. I actually was able to celebrate Sister Bidar with a former coworker. She encouraged us all to go for a walk, and we went out to the Olympic Sculpture Park and sat in the grass and ate our lunch and really enjoyed being outside. And I think it's an especially important component now when we spend so much of our time indoors. Mm. That the actual intentional act of going outside during lunch and not, you know, sitting at our desk in front of our computers was felt almost revolutionary. Right. <laughs> and it shouldn't be. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it did feel that way. And, and seeing other people out and, and maybe they were or were not celebrating Sister Badar. It was really nice to share that moment with her. Because I felt like I was able to connect with her, something that was important to her, something that was her cultural legacy, something that she was sharing with us mm. because we were her friends. And one of the things that we did when we were all out together in the park is knotting the greens. And the idea is that you tie a knot in a stem. We just used grass. You could use the sabza that's part of your half table. And toss them into the water if you can. And this is a customary ritual for young single people, especially young women. And it indicates a wish to find a partner or a husband. I am now reminded of our potatoes episode talking about young women in Ireland eating Colcannon and hoping to find a charm that says that they're going to be getting married in the new year. But there's more to the greens than just tying a knot in them. It really is a ritual performed at the end of the picnic to throw the sprouted greens that were part of your huff scene table, preferably into moving water, that you were releasing that back to the world, back to nature. Touching somebody else's greens in that day or bringing the plants back home is considered really bad luck. It's really about releasing those sprouts and manifesting the rest of the cycle of growth. One of the things we're talking about with Sista Bedar is the picnic, right? The idea that you go out to a park and that you have a picnic. There are a couple of dishes that were recommended as part of your picnic lunch. One of them I really like the the idea about it, and that's Kahu Senkanjubin. Kahu means lettuce leaves. Senkanjiben is the compound name of vinegar and honey syrup. And the idea is that you create this vinegary syrup and you dip your lettuce leaf into the syrup and then you eat that. I really like that idea of a fresh green leaf and you've got that tangy, sweet sauce. I just love that juxtaposition of sweet and sour and fresh crunch. There's one more dish that's baghali polo and this refers to broad beans polo is rice. Are you thinking of something that particular when you think about beans and rice? Because I'm thinking about Hop and John. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So in our New Year's Day episode, we explored Hoppin' John, which is fundamentally the combination of a broad bean or a field pea, along with rice, eaten for good luck. The components of the dish represent wealth. I don't know that this dish literally translates that way, because what struck me actually about things on the Hofstein table and their correlating spirit was that luck eating wasn't really a big component of that. It was about health and beauty and affluence, And fertility and life, but there wasn't necessarily an assigned value of that by doing this you're gonna create luck for yourself. I was starting to wonder if if there were just some cultural religious traditions that were that you had luck because of your actions. It was not something that you could consume in order Mm. to have. So I love the idea of this bean and rice dish because of what I think of with Hop and John and New Year's Day and its luck tradition. There was another recipe
0: that I came across, Sabzi Cordon, which is fresh herbs. So the mints and the tarragons mm. and the basils and the parsleys and the cilantro and radishes and spring onions. So they're all set out and then you've got flatbreads and feta cheese. So the concept is that you grab a flatbread and you grab this handful of fresh mint and radishes and onions and put it on the flatbread and then sprinkle it with the feta cheese. And again, all of those things that are so symbolic of spring, the cheese mm-hmm. and the radishes, the amazing herbs. And what's interesting to me, especially in our Western culture, we don't use herbs like Persians use herbs. Not at all. We use them as garnishes, but here yeah. it is what
1: you're eating. Like you said,
0: you can taste spring.
1: Yeah, And the earthiness and the water, the rainwater and warming of the sunlight on an unfurling herb frond. You really start to taste these things. The other thing that also really struck me, too, was that these are all very communal meals, right? Hmm. This is not you sitting down with your own plate of food where everything that you have is contained in front of you. And there's sort of that sense of sharing, scooping up nuts or grabbing a piece of something. It's very... I don't want to say informal because although that is ultimately what it is, but at the same time, it's just this very organic way of eating and sharing food with others. And so I just, I feel like this, you're sitting on the ground, you're connecting with the earth, you're feeling the sun on your face and the wind in your hair. It's so evocative of spring for me. It is. I'm so excited that we chose to pursue this topic because... I am enchanted by this tradition, and I think it's beautiful. I love the idea of greeting the spring wholeheartedly, and definitely something that I'm I'm going to be doing here in four days, albeit I'm I two thirty six a.m. might be a little rough, <laughs> but I'll be up. Probably it's worth it. It's worth it for sure.
0: So, which of these recipes do you think that you
1: would actually make? Hands down I want to make sabzi polo ba mahi. I can practically taste that dish with the herby green, the rice, the crispy fish, and I'm not even that much of a fish fan. This is a dish that I want to eat like right away. What about you? You know it's a toss up between the ash and a kuku sabzi mm-hmm. that Persian herb frittata. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to have to make the vinegar honey syrup because I want to put that on everything.
0: (laughs) Well, before we go experiment with our spring herbs, what can our listeners expect next week?
1: Next week, we are going to be honoring Passover. I'm excited. I have really fond memories of Passover. I had my best friend in elementary school is Jewish. And I used to celebrate a lot of high holidays with her and her family. And I was young, so I don't have the strongest memories of it. But I do remember it being a really interesting holiday full of history and interesting moments. I'm excited
0: to talk about Passover as well. As I mentioned, I was raised Lutheran, and one year our pastor actually put together a Seder meal, which I thought was so amazing. It stuck in my brain, so it was really impactful for me. So to learn even more, I'm very excited about that.
1: For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook.
0: And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five
1: stars, please. And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates.
0: Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it.
1: You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously.